Andre stalking the champion Hulk Hogan. Oh no, Lynn is way there. His leaping landing. What a headbutt. He held him there. Look at He's punishing Papo. Papo over the top rope now. Andre looking down and just. Oh no. He split him open with that headbutt and eliminated him. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation suggested for the following World Wrestling Federation event. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 128 of greetings from allentown i'm your host peter winston and today i'm very excited for this one you can you can tell just from listening to my voice how pumped up i am to talk about wwf saturday night's main event from march 14th 1987 i had this one pegged from probably the first episode that i've done of this show it's just i never got around to it and i wish i had before the video on youtube was blocked because so that everybody could see the original broadcast but it's mostly the same between the network and this just a few overdubs some more annoying than others this is sort of the peak of the wwf on nbc for saturday night's main event which i'll get into in a second but let me get in my plugs you can email the show greetings from at gmail.com facebook.com slash greetings from allentown give me a follow on twitter at gf allentown pod that is at gf allentown pod and you may be listening to the show on the pro wrestling only feed more on pro wrestling only coming up a little bit later in the show and other shows you can find on this network Towards the end of last week's show on USWA Texas, I think I alluded to going to the Lowell Folk Festival, as I like to do at least the last couple of years, when when I discovered that it was more than just a bunch of hippies wandering around aimlessly listening to music that I don't quite understand. It's music from all over the world, but as one guy's t-shirt said, and I probably should have worn this myself, I'm here for the food. And they had Laotian food, Filipino food. No, those are the two that I like the best. But from all different countries, often it's like the local church of that ethnic group that, you know, like the Nigerian church made Nigerian food. So I visited that tent, had some plantains, had empanadas somewhere else, and the, the whole deal. So that it's a great time. You, it, of course, it's $20 to park down in Lowell. So I actually, it's cheaper to take a Lyft or an Uber from my house. Like even with tip, it ends up being less than that. But there's one thing that just kind of blew my mind from this. They have some tents set up for you know groups that want to raise awareness of certain things. Like the poor ALS people who are just trying to, you know, raise awareness of ALS, but they're right next to the far left wing in impeach Trump now tent, 
which it, it's fine you, you you know for your political views and all that you are at a folk festival so that does tend to lean left however the, the looking at the some of the posters that they had i was like well here's how you know that they're serious they capitalize the first letter of every word in that paragraph but then also it's an indict trump pence now it's like i don't know if you guys are constitutional scholars but there's a whole impeachment proceeding for this kind of thing and that is how it works if, if you want to do it after he leaves office that's fine worry about it then but and then all of a sudden when my wife and i did the second lap to check on the second laotian uh thing to get some more noodles there was a religious guy i believe a jehovah's witness who decided to yell a bunch of what can only be categorized as anti-gay things right in front of the uh, anti-trump thing so they they start having an argument or start having a shouting contest with each other and these poor people who are just trying to end als they're stuck in the background and all the whole conversation for about seven hours after that point because the con the folk festival goes on into the night i like to go during the day on saturday before all the drunky mcdrunkersons get out there and the police have to tear gas them which i guess is something that happened on friday night but yeah those poor illness people are probably like oh great these people are such a-holes because we're, we're trying to we just came here to sit and hand out brochures and they're going to have an argument in front of it. why don't you have why don't you have some ice cream they were right next to like an ice cream stand too so I don't know, that's one of those kind of problems in public events. But one good thing that happened in my house over the weekend is we got a new back door. And this is actually when I took the notes for the show is I sat in the basement while the door, I, I, we had to keep the cat down there as well. And I'm actually looking out the back door in the John Fogarty parlance. And it's really great because I can, I can see all the woods back there. It's not this ugly, like where there's a second window. And it's it's a sliding door now rather than one, like a traditional one that opens and closes. It really, really kind of opens up things. And my wife and I have now eaten outside on several occasions because the no the door doesn't make some weird noise and as a side thing we uh the uh, trim around it looks all better now because it was wood before and now it is vinyl so it'll be much easier to clean so i'm very happy about that in fact usually when i record this show i like to have a candle there just to kind of have some smell and right now i'm just going to i'm just going to stare out the back door and uh, unfortunately there's that one tree that kind of fell over and we had to cut off so it kind of looks like an erect penis and uh, it, it, it's kind of sticking out from the rest uh, rest of the uh, bushes which i guess would be like pubic hair anyway en en enough of that enough of that talk i i, I don't want to go too far into the woods so to speak and that is even more important when talking about this Saturday night's main event from March of 1987 leading into WrestleMania 3, the peak of Saturday night's main event on NBC. Yeah, a lot of people like to point to 33 million people watching the main event on NBC in February of 88, but that's the main event. That's a completely different animal. That's 8 o'clock on Friday night. This is 11.30 on Saturday night. And the 11.6 rating that this show drew was the highest in the history of Saturday Night's main events run. And so I actually consider it more impressive 
than the main event show because that rating for in terms of rating points was I think about a 17 and this one being 11.6 sure it's fewer people but it's also at 11:30 at night just to kind of give you a means to compare it with Saturday night live in the 86 87 season when they were transitioning into the Dana Carvey Phil Hartman crew was drawing a 7.6 on average so this is actually about 50% higher than SNL although it would take a little bit but SNL was usually in about the 8s during that Carvey and Hartman era into the early 90s. Originally, though, this was supposed to air on March 7th, but according to the Wrestling Observer, there was some sort of Easter Seals telethon, so they couldn't get cleared on a lot of the NBC affiliates, so rather than have this show just not air in those markets, you'll just wait another week, which explains why this one is a little bit longer than some of the other Saturday Night Main Event. The early Saturday Night Main Events, some of them were taped on Thursday and aired on Saturday. Here, you got a full three weeks because it was taped on a Saturday, which I think was important for this show because it drew a 21,000 sellout at the Joe Louis Arena. So, the same place where Ronnie Garvin beat Ric Flair for the NWA world title later in, 90, in 1987. Kind of think of this show as a companion piece to that one. And thinking of Detroit, though, in that year, they had, they had drawn 8,000 at the Joe Louis Arena the last time they were, they were there, which was only on January 24th. So that's four weeks. They're almost running it on something of a New York Madison Square Garden schedule Maybe not quite once a month, but if they're running it in January and then in February, and then you're going to have WrestleMania in nearby Pontiac in March. I mean, that kind of is what it is. I was looking backwards and kind of see where they were in Detroit in terms of attendance. They did get sellouts at the Joe Louis Arena in January of 86, April of 86, and October of 86. The April of 86 one is pretty impressive considering that, you know, there was a bit of a lull at that point in the WWF. So there's no, no Piper and a lot of guys just aren't there. So it's kind of a transition spot. But the build for WrestleMania 3 is kind of encapsulated in this show, even though, as I said, they aren't allowed to actually say WrestleMania on NBC's airways. I mean, God forbid they do anything like that, because Saturday Night's Main Event is a completely separate universe from the rest of the WWF shows. Yes, we'll air these matches on primetime wrestling at some point down the road, but don't you be plugging your pay-per-view because it's kind of, sort of, maybe a competitor to the national broadcasting company. Eventually, I think they eased on that as you get to, like, WrestleMania six, but it took a little while. Oh, I want to talk about the build for WrestleMania three because I think... Of all WWF pay-per-views, even all the way up to today, where the builds are just not as good because you only have a month for them and everything always just seems kind of rushed. Beyond Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan, which you know is the main thing, the one that drew the large number to the Pontiac Silverdome, which is the subject of great debate. You have these other matches with fantastic builds. Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat. Go back in the archives. I covered the episode where Steamboat's larynx, as Jesse Ventura would say, was damaged by Randy Savage with the ring bell. Kind of see that as the number two match from WrestleMania 3. And I'm going to classify Adrian Adonis and Roddy Piper as 2A 
I mean, I, I've gone chapter and verse on that in the first episode of Greg's Valentine, and I think I think elsewhere as well. And so that that feud that's a culmination of that feud that goes back even further than Savage and Steamboat. And your number four match is probably the six man with the Hearts and Danny Davis against the British Bulldogs and Tito Santana, and we actually see Tito on this show on the opposite side of Danny Davis, who is not wrestling because they saved his actual kind of sort of debut for WrestleMania three. Yes, he had wrestled under a mask as Mister X occasionally, but not as Danny Davis, former referee in the ridiculous striped outfit. Even stuff that you wouldn't even pay much mind to, especially in this day and age, something that's a little bit further down the card, like Billy Jack Haynes versus Hercules, you're going to get a bit of a build for that on this show in the 20-man over-the-top rope battle royal. The hook of that whole thing is Andre the Giant being in the same ring as Hulk Hogan for the first time since the Piper's Pit incident. But you know, Billy Jack and Hercules have a go to help kind of build to their WrestleMania match, even if you're not saying that you know they're going to have a match there and they had had an ongoing issue with the battle of the full nelson even stuff like the dream team as much as you might not like it how dino bravo was kind of pigeonholed into that tag team partner of greg valentine's spot considering it's a definite downgrade from brutus beefcake but at least it opened up beefcake gave him something to do taking over in that feud with Adonis that kind of got aborted after WrestleMania 3 because Adonis got fired. But still, you can't argue with the way that it was built. And another another point for me arguing that you really have to watch the week-to-week TV to really enjoy and to really comprehend the build for these things. That's why I'd love it if these superstars would be on the network. Hell, even put friggin' Challenge on there, because they're going to cover a lot of the important stuff from superstars. Oh, no, we have to blur out the damn banners. Like, didn't you blur out a bunch of them for 24-7? I really really don't get it. And then, of course, I should mention that I had said that this was on YouTube and it was blocked, but it was only blocked in the United States, which I found kind of funny. It's like, does that mean if I drive three hours north and enter Quebec, I can actually see the entire video that, well, the one thing that caused it to be blocked, and I traced it back through, uh, you know, what it said underneath the video. Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, that's a a no-no using that in a YouTube video. But that was played for a Roddy Piper tribute, which was tacked on to the end of this show, which probably uh, probably a good thing to keep people staying tuned because Piper's retirement is coming at WrestleMania 3 and this being an era where we weren't just inundated with guys having retirement matches and then coming back. Sure, Terry Funk had his retirement match in 1983 and came back numerous times to have more retirement matches. But back then... No, no, no. He's totally serious. He's going to Hollywood. And the way Piper addresses it is with a degree of great seriousness. So I I can't wait to discuss this show because this is one of the best Saturday Night Main Events that there ever was. So without any further ado, let's get right to it. The fight for second place in the Patrick Division continues as the Caps travel to the great Midwest to take on the St. Louis Blues. Saturday at 8.30 on DC20, your superstation for sports. 
That game ended in a 3-3 tie between the Capitals and the Blues, two teams that you wouldn't think would have an issue with each other, but because this was 1987 hockey, there was a line brawl just for the hell of it, non-conference opponents, some good stuff. The Capitals did end up getting second place in the Patrick division because the Flyers were running away with it. Didn't do them any good because they got home ice in the first round, and when the Capitals host game sevens, generally it tends to not go well for them, and they lost a four-overtime East epic to the New York Islanders. Meanwhile, the Blues ended up winning the Norris division with with an under 500 record, which would not be the last time that the St. Louis Blues would win something, despite not being a very good team. Oh, boo me all you want, because just wait until Jordan Bennington's career turns out to be the poor man's Cam Ward. Anyway, Saturday night's main event, we get the promos up top, a, a, a type of thing that I love. I like this format because I can just play them and then I can snark on them like I did with the Hulk Hogan comeback thing a couple of shows ago. In the 20-man over-the-top battle royal, I have no friends. The most dangerous match in professional wrestling means each man out for himself. My main objective, to get even with Andre the Giant. When you tore my shirt, when you tore the cross off my chest, when you tore the heart and souls out all those little hulksters, that was the reason I got in this 20-man battle royal. You broke the rules, man. Now there are no rules. Survive with the fittest. Bodies flying out over the top everywhere. My eyes, Andre the Giant. Main concern will be focused on your seven foot five, 500 pound, big, nasty body. And sooner or later in the battle royal, it's going to be just you and me. That would actually be kind of hilarious if they went through with this battle royal and Hogan and Andre were just on opposite sides the entire time and they each got eliminated on their own accord and they never actually hook up in the center of the ring. That, that would be an interesting way of booking it to really piss off crap. But hey, Hogan, why are giants always big and nasty? You always use that verbiage. Is it, is it some sort of smell thing? That's right. You're going to have your eyes on this gentleman right here. But that's all you're going to have on him. He's going to have his eyes on you and his hands all over you because this is the greatest athlete in the history of sports. I'm kind of interested in how Heenan came to the conclusion that Andre the Giant is the greatest athlete of all time. I mean, sure, you got, you know, Daly Thompson, who had won the decathlon gold medal at both the 84 and 80 Olympics, and, you know, numerous others, Jim Thorpe, Babes Didrikson, Zaharias. I don't know why I just keep naming track and field athletes, but like Walter Payton, uh, Willie Mays, uh, Babe Ruth. Uh, Yeah, Andre's just a little bit better than all of them. Now, Sandy Koufax. I mean, Sandy Koufax would probably need the ropes to hold himself up just like Andre. I would say Jackie Robinson, but then again, Dave Meltzer believes that the kids don't know who Jackie Robinson is these days. Tonight is the first time that I've ever been the prize in a match. If Randy wins, I stay with him. And if George wins, he gets the title and he gets to keep me. Tonight is definitely the scariest night of my life. If you're a fan of that era, you probably know that Randy Savage and George Steele had a trillion matches with approximately half a trillion of them occurring on Saturday night's main event. But did you remember that they had a human trafficking awareness match? Because apparently that's what this is. (laughs) If she thinks she's scared, imagine how Tito Santana and Danny Spivey feel when they meet the Hart Foundation for the first time a seven-night main event with a world tag team titles at stake. It may be our first time, but it'll be their last time. (laughs) 
Well, no kidding. That's like the mother of all makeshift tag teams. Tito Santana and Dan Spivey. Like, did these guys ever team up anywhere else on television? One of them is substituting for Mike Rotundo. And when we get to that match, I'm going to kind of investigate to see which one is the actual substitute. It's a fact. Men get hungry. But Damien hasn't eaten in over a month. So he's ready, ready. So why don't you join us? A special invitation from the snake. Watch us feast on 400 pounds of white meat known as King Kong. I was wondering how animal rights groups would react to something like that. Oh, I haven't fed Damien in over a month, but I actually don't know much about snakes. I didn't have them in PetSmart or anything like that when I worked there. But apparently it is fairly normal for snakes to go a month without food. So it's not something you can really get on him for. And uh, along the way in my snake research that I did, just did uh, yes apparently snakes can fart i did not know that actually so as i said this is taking place at the joe lewis arena home of the detroit red wings but not the detroit pistons as i mentioned they went to the pontiac silverdome for their own games now there was no red wings game on this night on march 14th when this would have aired the red wings were on the road in Bloomington, Minnesota, to take on the North Stars. And the Red Wings, despite trailing 3 to nothing after one period, came back and won by a score of 4-3. to three. Also on that day, the Boston Bruins played at the Boston Garden against the Chicago Blackhawks. And I know this because I was there with my Blackhawks youth hockey team. My youth hockey coach that year was a big fan of the Chicago Blackhawks, so we had a group together, and the Bruins blew a 4-1 third-period lead, and that game ended in a 4-4 tie. I should just run down the entire NHL schedule for that night and just call it Peter Rinson's Sports Machine and be like, good night, everybody. But unfortunately, I could not find uh, actual highlights of... uh in case you're wondering for you nba fans out there the night that this was taped the pistons were actually at home and beat the atlanta hawks 102 to 97 and on the night that this aired they beat philadelphia 98 to 95 to which i would say the 87 pistons just an absolutely reprehensible team but they had a long road trip around wrestlemania 3 i've never put two and two together on that like oh yeah well the pistons were playing in the silver dome and wrestlemania 3 how did that impact that and night a very long road trip over a 10 day stretch 10 11 day stretch at the end of march of that year and we see our host jesse the body ventura and vince mcmahon and jesse has on what i have to classify as my favorite ventura outfit the one with kind of the snake ensemble and for that, Vince wastes no time busting Jesse's balls. Jesse, does Jake the Snake know that you're wearing Damien's sister? Oh, you're real funny, McMahon, for somebody who doubled Burgess Meredith as the Penguin on Batman. You're real clever. We'll get back to that later on. But they never did come back to that. It's like Vince is the dad, like, uh, oh, maybe later, maybe later, just h- kind of hoping that the kids will forget about it. And they run down what's going to be on the show. And Hogan and Andre is clearly the hook. So we're going to go back to the World Heavyweight Champion, Hulk Hogan, who is with Gene Okerlund. And they show some flashbacks of the Piper's Pit shows, or the Piper's Pit that Andre tore the cross off Hulk Hogan. So clearly he's a little emotional with this friendship that he had with Andre coming to such an abrupt end. Well, you know, there's a lot of those people out there, man, that say, why are you doing it? Why don't you wait for a one-on-one confrontation with Andre the Giant? 
Well, mean Gene, those few people who say that, they aren't Hulkamaniacs, man. The Hulkamaniacs know I like living in the danger zone, man. They know that after Andre the Giant tore the heart and the souls out of all those little hulksters, I'd take him anytime, anywhere, any place I could. I don't care if there were 450 men in that battle royal. I would still have my sights set on Andre the Giant. I don't care if all of Helan's men came after me at the same time. I would still have my eyes set on Andre the Giant. Now look, I know our beloved Hulkster is prone to exaggeration, but I want to see a 450-man battle royal. That would be so awesome, and God knows that WWE has enough guys under contract now to probably actually fill, I guess it would have to be multiple rings, because I I don't think it's logistically possible unless you did levels or something like that, but somebody pass along to the Saudi crown prince or whoever's in charge of the booking, I want a 450-man battle royal. Battle Royal to happen in Saudi Arabia. Now, remember, Saudi Arabia, it's got to be all men, right? So 450 men. You're telling me I'd say he's a mental moron. He's got to step in there with Andre the Giant, and I predict the Giant's going to send the man into orbit. Well, at this point, Andre is the size of several different planets in the solar system. So if you do throw him into orbit, I guess that means he would be mooning Andre at the end of the day. Anyway, so we get a flashback now to the Randy Savage, George Steele kerfluffle from January of 87, wherein the animal goes outside the ring and picks up Elizabeth and basically commits false imprisonment. I mean, he could have been brought up on some charges, but once again, Vince on commentary is basically like, oh, the end justifies the means because at least she's in the arms of somebody who cares. Like, all right, well, seriously, I mean, can you imagine if that was the defense for like any false imprisonment slash kidnapping case in history? Jeez. So we go to Randy Savage in the back, and he's his usual nutso self, because as paranoid as he was in real life, the fact that they chose to have him in a feud where this ugly, ugly man is lusting after his wife and, like, touching her and getting all close and handsy, and granted, he mentally, he's not all there, but the stuff is just driving Savage nuts, and nutso Savage is the best macho man. Are you fearful that George the Animal Steel might try something tonight? Well, Gene, I am scared. I'm scared. Now that's uh, you talking to her right there. Scared woman, man. I'm the macho man, Randy Savage. Yeah, I will prevail. Yeah, because I'm psyched up. Randy, have you ever had more on the line than you have tonight? I mean, your belt's on the line, and also your manager, Elizabeth. Although some say she's more than just a manager. Listen, you little duck pin, man. I could slap you right now and throw you right through that Saturday night main event right there. Yeah. When Savage goes to take Liz with him, we learn that Elizabeth will actually be entering last as the prize in this human trafficking match. It, one thing Elizabeth is really good at, and there's always talk about her, oh, she's very good at looking concerned, but she's also very good at having low self-esteem. Like the way she's always kind of looking down and, you know, just kind of like she doesn't really believe in herself, which is a lesson to all of you out there, especially the single men. Even the hot women can have low self-esteem, so you may have a chance. I think that can work the other way, too, where somebody seems so unattainable that nobody will ever actually go up and talk to them. But my question about this match is, why does Steel not have to put anything up? Like, Savage has to put up the IC title and Liz... And Steel has to put up nothing? Like, what gives? Like, not even, like, a loser leave town for 90 days? What the hell's going on here? Or at least he should put up his hair. 
It, uh, then again, I just realized, you know, the, to shave all that body hair would take up the entire 90 minutes of the show. So we go back. Jean is with Liz again and is kind of mildly hitting on her when the animal now crashes onto the scene and gets all creepy. Elizabeth, uh, you look ravishing. It's going to be a big night for everybody involved. Oh, yes, it is, Jean. I'm just worried that somebody might get hurt. Well, that happens in this kind of... Elizabeth! You're drooling, George, please. Manager! That's right, George. She is the manager of the intercontinental champion, Macho Man Randy Savage. Manager! That's right. Well, then again, they might just have been taking my advice from before and seeing Liz and thinking, well, I'm just going to shoot my shot on this. But the good news is that Liz, who's all looking down and stuff, she did find about $10 in change on the ground. That actually happened with me. I'm over at my mother's house, and I'm cleaning the area behind her washer and dryer, which is just disgusting, and I'm not sure it was ever cleaned. By the way, another public service announcement. Clean out your dryer vents because, you know, there is a very real risk of fire. Luckily, the uh, little uh, tube was not that long. I could just stick my hand in it and pull out 10 pounds of lint. So Liz, very good at just looking down and being very concerned and just appearing to have zero self-esteem whatsoever. Jesse, for his part, says that George Steele should be in Attica, for which he's making a mistake there because this type of act, because he's not crossing state lines, would be a crime in the state in which it's committed. So he would be going to Connecticut prison. And I wonder if he'd be going to that prison on right off I-395 on your way down to New London, the one that's like right next to the highway, and you start seeing all these signs that say, do not pick up hitchhikers. That's a hitchhiker, Homer. Ooh, let's pick him up. No, what if he's crazy? And what if he's not? Then we'd look like idiots. So they go back to Elizabeth, who's still with Gene Oakland in the back, and in kind of an awkward moment when she walks off, Gene kind of like eyes her up and down. I mean, you could definitely see it, but the best part of it is that Jesse calls him on it. All right, a very brave and a very lovely woman headed to a uncertain fate, Miss Elizabeth. Let's go back to you, Vince. All right, back to it, Ray. Wait time. just a minute, McMahon. Did you see that little bald-headed pervert Oakland looking at Elizabeth when she left? What He's do you mean a by disgrace. That? He is a disgrace for the broadcasting industry. That's what I love about Jesse is on a normal broadcast, they would just kind of let it go and let the audience say, did you notice that Oakland did that? But no, Jesse is going to just bring every... He's going to put the laundry out. He's going to put it all out on the line for everybody to see. Now, Elizabeth, when she gets to ringside, she doesn't get to just stand there like a normal human being. Instead... Opposite the hard camera, they have set up this large lifeguard chair. I mean, that is pretty much what it is, as they got two guys holding it. I'm expecting, like, David Hasselhoff to run out of the crowd or something, but I don't think Baywatch was around yet in 87. He's still doing uh, Night Rider, whatever. So this is the era before vain dudes sitting in the front row, like Mets jersey guy, who's, you know, probably got to be wondering why Noah Syndergaard is on the block. But anyway, they would be blocked by the lifeguard chair. So 
uh, perhaps we need more matches where uh, a person is up for grabs and you just put them in a lifeguard chair and you'll just block everybody who is at ringside. That'd be nice. And Jesse refers to Randy Savage as, quote, the intercontinental champion of the world, which is a line that'll always get a laugh out of me. Is that kind of like being the British Empire champion in 1840 where, yeah, the British, are it's this little island in Western Europe, but, uh, you know, the British Empire, the sun doesn't set on it, so uh, you're the British Empire champion of the world. And Savage goes off the top to the outside with a double axe handle because George is next to the lifeguard chair ogling at Liz or, you know, doing his usual. And Liz gets led to the back by Savage, who is just going to make a run for it. But uh, if he loses by count out, that means she goes over to steal it legally from a WWF Constitution perspective. But luckily, uh, that whole situation is cut off by Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, who appears in the aisle. And thankfully, on this original video, we get to hear Sirius by the Alan Parsons Project. So he just kind of walks them back towards ringside. And the first thing that I notice is, man, did they not give them much of an aisle way. I've noticed this on a lot of different Saturday Night Main events. Now, granted, they're selling 21,000 seats, so you probably want to make as much money as you can. But, geez, was that aisle really, really tight to the point where, you know, you, you could almost have people from each side touching each other. That's how close they are. Now, Steel attacks from behind. And he's, he starts biting the macho man, who is extremely disoriented and takes a swing, almost hits the referee. Just just like when he got bit by uh, King Cobra in 1991. Steele sends his head to the buckle, which immediately gets the animal distracted. So now he's going to pop open the top turnbuckle and start eating it. But what he's doing, he has control of the match, but yet he's into the buckle. Look at that. That's stupidity. I mean, this guy belongs in a cage. There's no doubt about it. He, there's no room for him in professional wrestling. Look at him. He's all Oh, look, George Steele is not a super worker, and I'm not totally into him, but he did make his life a lot easier because he has a built-in transition spot to turn the offense over to the Macho Man. I mean, most other matches at this time period would be like Irish Whip, he puts his head down, cardinal mistake by a ring veteran. Steele, uh, you just got to go rip open a turnbuckle, and that, that's your easy transition. Slam by the Macho Man, and it looks like he's going to go for the big elbow, but Steele is actually on his feet, so double axe handle by Savage off the top and then he goes for a clothesline but his arm is caught and the animal is now biting him who then lifts Savage up with both hands and kind of like the choke slam position like he's going to do total penetration a la Big Dick Dudley but uh, instead just kind of tosses him off to the other side of the ring now he wants to go and eat the opposite corner turnbuckle and throws some foam to the face of Randy Savage. At least I hope that it's that. I don't think they were stuffing turnbuckles with asbestos. I mean, that would be extremely irresponsible. And he goes out to take Elizabeth out of the chair. So there you get your second built-in transition for George, who Savage from behind and sends the animal into the barricade and picks up the chair, of which Liz is now vacated, and throws it onto George Steele. It's not a particularly heavy chair. It's just, you know, it's almost like it's PVC piping leading up to the high chair. Savage rolls into the ring. Referee is putting the count on. Rolls in between eight and nine. And, hey, all you had to do was win the match by any means. It's not like he had to put Animal out and make him submit, pin him for one, two, three, or anything like that. 
the so he retains the title he retains elizabeth but the animal's got to get his heat back by throwing savage out of the ring and then we get george Steele with the intercontinental belt which has been left behind gets to hold it up in his hometown because this is detroit the home of george Steele, the man real name william james myers who passed away in 2017 actually the same week that i debuted this podcast way back when and he unfurls a poster of elizabeth that i don't think i i never knew anybody in my childhood who had a poster of elizabeth on the wall in their bedroom i mean i guess you know it kind of goes in with the farrah fawcett thing maybe a little bit more classy you know you don't get like the you know open nipple you know shot that you could see with farrah fawcett and i guess you know maybe it raises less questions causes the parents to worry a little bit less if say i don't know they put up a poster of i don't want to say hulk hogan but like you know some mid-card dude you're like, why do you have a poster of Brian Blair up on your wall? I mean, you probably call child services at that point, and they probably want to step in. Standing by right now is the Hulkster preparing for the battle royal. Andre Orjoff, Andre Hercules, Andre Volkov, Andre, Andre, Andre. I think sometimes we forget how simple of a man Hulk Hogan was prior to WrestleMania 3. I mean, listen to him there. He's like Brick Tamland. I love Lamp. I love Lamp. Well, whatever gets you fired up is going to be fine. So we go back to the arena, and Jesse Ventura puts over the danger of battle royals. It's always the guys who existed in the era before they put the pads down at ringside. It's either that or current independent wrestlers where they wouldn't necessarily have pads outside the ring either who like always are putting over how dangerous battle royals are although gorilla monsoon would talk about in the ring and guys would step on other guys which was you know usually you're you're pretty careful unless a tugboat is in there he's going to trip over somebody paul orndorff is shown coming out to the ring and Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer said he got a huge babyface reaction that was drowned out on the audio. Now, I, I didn't see anybody in the crowd going nuts for him as he was walking out. I thought it might be because they had this thing where Orndorff would come out to Hogan's music as sort of a taunt. Same way that Morocco and Orndorff, when they're feuding with Roddy Piper in late 86, they would come out to the bagpipes and wear kilts. It didn't sound like his music was playing, so I don't know. Who knows if whether that's the truth or not. It might have been some secondhand report, but I didn't actually see it on the broadcast. Now, Battle Royals are a dangerous match. I can testify to that because it's a dangerous match to cover on a podcast. Because how are you going to go through it? The Royal Rumble, I would have an actual system. You know, you have the first two guys in there, you talk about what they did. I mean, I did this in my reviews on my old blog where, okay, one and two, and then the third guy comes in, you say, oh, he hit a couple of his moves. The fourth guy comes in, blah, 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 and cover any sort of eliminations. Here, it's a little bit more chaotic. But first, before we get to the match, we got Bobby Heenan and Andre the Giant in the back. And I'm waiting with bated breath for Andre 
to actually say something. And luckily, I'm not disappointed. I want to be as close to that ring as I possibly can be because I'm going to watch this man here, the greatest athlete in sports today, throw Hulk Hogan over that top rope to the cement floor. For three years, Hogan, you have hid from this man. Didn't once offer him a championship match. Now tonight, I know your strategy. You're going to try to hide behind all those other wrestlers. If he has to walk over every wrestler, throw everyone out single-handedly, he's going to get his hands on you tonight. All right, what about it, Andre? Hogan, I want you. Well, that's all Andre said, but I was wondering where he was going. Was he going to go the cheap trick route? I want you to want me. Or perhaps it was Peter Frampton. Eh, I'm going to go ahead and say that Andre really wasn't going for either. He's still learning how to be a proper heel in the United States because this is very new for him. Japan, that's a completely different story. But in the U.S., it's I don't know. It's kind of funny how he becomes this monster heel as you get later into the year, fall of '87, as he's doing press for the Princess Bride, and he's like appearing on the Today Show, but yet he's the guy still opposing Hulk Hogan. You get the shadow of WrestleMania III. It's kind of odd how the timing of that worked out, because Fezzik is such a beloved character. The other thing that always throws me about the Princess Bride is Andre has his pre-haircut hair, but then he has to cut it all off again before he goes back to WWF because, well, you know, you, you got to maintain, you know, continuity with the hair. One thing about Battle Royals that I, I like, and I'm probably in the top 5 or 10% of wrestling fans in terms of enjoying Battle Royals, I love the process of the dudes just milling around before the match actually starts. Like, huh, Coco Beware is just standing next to Outlaw Ron Bass and acts like, what's going on here? Well, they're not wild animals. They're not just going to attack each other. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, well, if one one guy sees the other and one's a baby face and a heel, they should fight each other. Like, no, they're human beings. I mean, they can kind of, you know, hang back and, you know, in the immortal words of <laughs> Milton Burl, pick your spots, baby, pick your spots. So Vince, as Andre is coming to the ring because you got plenty of time because it's going to take uh, the giant a while to meander his ass down there. Vince takes the opportunity. He kind of gives you that one-minute elevator speech of why Hogan and Andre, why this feud matters. When you look back to the past, I mean, these two men, Andre and Hogan, they were like brothers. Introducing I mean, each helping the other out along their way, ensuring that we're both seeing things the right way. I can remember when Hulk Hogan was attempting to become champion of the world and Andre the Giant right there at his side all the way. I can remember Hulk talking about how he chose Andre as his role model in his quest for the title. How Andre would conduct himself in the company of children, his kindness to them. How he would show his sense of fair play in as well as out of the ring. His enormous pride in himself and for mankind. But I'll tell you, boy, has Andre taken a detour. And don't just blame Andre's conduct on Bobby the Brain. He didn't because down deep, Andre had to harbor resentment. He had to harbor jealousy. And whatever dark secrets Andre holds in his heart, not just Hulk, but I think I could speak for almost every fan in the world, we've all been thrown to the mat by Andre's recent actions. Good God, that was fabulous. Vince just slowly getting angrier and angrier as he talks about it. it just, just getting into that classic Vince voice. And the way he's portraying this is very different from Gorilla Monsoon. And maybe 
gorilla. Maybe it was just his proximity to Heenan, because Heenan is next to him on Challenge. He's next to him on Primetime. A lot of the time, Gorilla would just say, I've known Andre the Giant for so many years, and just blame everything on Heenan for, like, brainwashing him or something. But Vince here kind of puts a little bit more of the onus on Andre that Gorilla never really explicitly did. Now, back to the thing that I love about people just milling around. Once again, Axe, who clearly does give a shit here in 1987. When Andre steps over the top rope and into the ring, he's applauding. I love it. Other Heels applauding other heels. And Axe just coming off a run as Super Machine welcoming the former giant machine in his ring. Good to see the machines still stick together. Must have been that theme song that just kind of... Uh, it's the tie that binds, I guess. And as Hulk Hogan comes out to Real American, and Andre is there to just kind of block the way in. And that shot is, once again, very well framed at ringside. You have Hogan down below. You have Andre up in the ring. You get the Saturday Night's main event banner up in the corner. Everything is just perfect with that. And as Hogan is finally allowed into the ring... Everybody else in there, all 18 guys, are just kind of watching Hogan and Andre. With the exception of Mr. Wonderful Paul Andre, when the bell sounds, he goes right at Hogan. Because he's got his own thing with the Hulkster, dating back, oh god, like eight months now. I mean, don't forget, that's the big angle of 1986. And it's still, it goes back to the previous Saturday Night's Main Event where they had the tie coming out of the steel cage and, well, the, the rumor is that, well, that, that would have made it plausible that Orndorff could have filled in for Andre at WrestleMania three if the Giant couldn't go. But can you imagine how much of a disaster that would have been if Andre, after the way they built this, if Andre couldn't go, that would have been a huge issue. Like, that would have been a disaster that people would still be talking about 32 years later. And they'd be talking about it much more than whatever the attendance was at the Silverdome. Now, everybody is going at Andre, which is sound strategy in the Battle Royal because you want to get the big guy out while there's a lot of help from guys who are not as big. Orndorff and Honky and Hercules are all going at Hogan, so that's a three-on-one situation. But the Honky Tonk Man is the first one eliminated by Hogan. So a little bit of a payoff to that uh, friendship angle. Because Hogan was the one who vouched for the Honky Tonk Man in the beginning. And then Honky kind of railed against Hogan when the babyface run didn't work out. He lost the vote of confidence. Andre gets his power stuff in as well. as He just kind of heaves Sika over the top. So you're talking a 310-pound guy putting over how powerful Andre is. Because Sika is just kind of thrown out like a rag doll. And it's at this point that I notice... At Orndorff, it wasn't odd that he attacked Hogan at the beginning. What is strange is Mr. Wonderful is not wearing knee pads. And I'm wondering, what the hell is going on? Because I've never seen him without knee pads. He's been in this company for over three years. Three years wearing knee pads. Three years to wear knee pads is a long time. But for God's sakes, you could have gotten new ones. You could have borrowed some from, I don't know, who in the back. Maybe you could have borrowed Tito's before his match. I don't know what order they might have taped this in or anything. 
Outlaw Ron Bass and Blackjack Mulligan are having a go. Mulligan comes in in early 87, and they have the natural feud with the two cowboy dudes from Texas. But then Mulligan just sort of leaves in the middle of the night in 87. Now, he was up there in years, but it's kind of funny how Ron Bass had the same problem as Brutus Beefcake in that they're, they're, the guy that they were opposing in their post-WrestleMania 3 feud all of a sudden just disappeared. So, I don't know. Maybe in 88 they should have bonded over that in kayfabe. I mean, they they had the same career issues when you really think about it. Now, we get a glimpse of the future with Andre and his future tag team partner, Haku. But it's only for a second, the future <laughs> colossal connection, as Andre just chucks Haku out of the ring. And then... We get the spot that everybody remembers from this battle royal, the one that I played in the opening intro, where Andre just kind of grabs Lanny Poffo, and it kind of makes you wonder what Poffo is doing in this match. Well, this is what Poffo is doing in this match. I don't know if this is his most famous Saturday Night's Main Event moment, or if it's beating Hogan by count out a couple of years later, but when he gets headbutt by Andre, and his nose just absolutely explodes it's a grisly mess it's like a freaking crime scene when he's thrown out there and you can see the blood everywhere and on his face and he's kind of sprawled out they should have just had one of the referees come down and just do like a chalk outline and like left it there for the rest of the night because that was lanny poffa like the like the end of um the naked gun with the uh, with the same sort of chalk outline, but the, the claw. They actually, knowing that Poffo's nose has exploded, they actually go to a close up of him on NBC, where blood not exactly a thing that they encouraged. And Jesus! Oh no, that's the result of Andre's extraordinary headbutt. Manny Poffo on his way back to the dressing room. And again, everyone will take notice that this is the new Andre. So if you've ever wondered in those bunkhouse battle royals that you may have seen in the WWF from the late 80s, why Lanny Poffo would often wear a suit of armor, that would be why. Because, yeah, they say that the battle royal is the most dangerous match, and they're like, ha, 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 what a bunch of crap. Well, Lanny Poffo could tell a very different story. So this actually does put over the danger of Battle Royals, or more accurately, just the danger of being headbutted by Andre the Giant. Ron Bass is eliminated, who really cares, but Blackjack Mulligan is out via an Andre hip toss. So just like Sika, 300-plus pound guy put out by Andre with relative ease, pretty much with one arm. Hogan eliminates Nikolai Volkov, and all I could hear in my head is Bob Euchre at WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. USA is in! Yes, sir! And then Andre, because this whole thing is centered around Hulk and Andre, at least while they're in the match anyway. Andre does the world a favor by eliminating Brian Blair. And then he follows it up by just sticking his foot on Coco Beware's throat, which was kind of funny because Coco is one of the smaller guys in this match. So the the size differential is just crazy. As once again, a a team goes at Hulk Hogan to try and and get him out of there. Hercules and Orndorff do a cross-corner whip to Hogan, because there's now few enough guys that you could actually do that. And he runs directly into Andre, who moves back a couple of steps. And now we're going to have it. We got the big moment, the big confrontation. Oh, Hulkster, whipped across. Oh, whipped into Andre. We got it. Here it is. 
Here it is, McMahon, the confrontation we've been waiting for. Here it is. These two behemoths ready to lock up finally. Hulk Hogan looking right into the eyes of the Locked right hand. A right hand by the Hulkster. Hulkster moves in. Hulkster moves in and another right hand. The giant back to the ropes. Hulkster, here he got. Wait a minute. Hook cut off by Paul Orndorff. Action smash hammering away as well. So you're only going to give the audience a taste of this. It's kind of like when you go to a brewery or a brew pub and they give you the little two-ounce glass so that you can remind yourself, oh, yeah, I'm not that into Dunkel Weissens, but I keep trying this every year or so just to kind of remind myself, do I now have a taste for this? But no, you're not going to be doing keg stands yet. You're only going to get a small little taste. The funniest part of it is Coco Beware just kind of runs in as Andre and Hogan are having their face off. and He, get, he kind of gets tossed away by Andre. I don't know if that was something that they would have wanted to do to kind of make it a little bit more real. Considering that Coco was just getting abused by Andre on the mat. But we do get to see a slight vulnerability in the Giant. And Orndorff kind of interferes on behalf of his fellow Heenan family member. And Hogan slams Orndorff over the top rope. But now his back is facing the giant who then takes advantage. Andre's got Hogan. He's got him. The giant's got the champion. Big headbutt, much to the same as Papo. No, I can't believe Over the top. Andre's eliminated Hogan and done it easily. Done it easily. There's a lot to unpack just from that 15 to 20 second clip of what's going on. Starting with Hulk Hogan losing clean on national television. It's not something that they would do generally. It's not like he was losing in tag matches and taking the pinfall. Even Bruno San Martino was doing that. They would not do such a thing with Hulk Hogan. So it's kind of jarring to see. But my eye is drawn to one thing, and it's not that Andre grabs Hogan by the hair on the back of his head and gives him a headbutt to the back of his head, similar to the main event in 88, right before he pins him with Hogan's shoulder up and the fake Hebner, all that. And not that he throws out Hogan on the same side as he threw out Lanny Poffo, and that they've, they've actually cleaned up most of the blood, although I could see a little bit there. No, no, no. Behind Andre, when he throws him out, Hogan goes over the top, hits the apron, and down to the floor. And you can see this one guy come up with a fist in the air. He's an African-American man, and I want to meet him if he's still alive. Because I want to find out what his deal was as that one guy who was cheering Andre eliminating Hogan. I don't know if he knew things about Hogan that, say, we didn't know until 30 years later, or if it was something else entirely. Like, I'm a big Andre fan, but he, like, threw a fist in the air in a way that would not be seen for another 32 years when Chris Davis got his first hit of the 2019 season, and you could see a man in the right field bleachers throw a fist in the air in a very similar fashion, I might add. I tell you that. Because that man was me. Now you know the rest of the story. But anyway, the most important thing was that Andre knows how to work to the hard camera. Because if he didn't do that, they would have replaced him in the main event of WrestleMania 3 with Kamala or something like that. But the thing that Jesse and Vince freak out about at the very end of the clip was Andre kind of did the brush-off move where he just kind of moved his hands a certain way. I'm going to post the gif of that because... It, it is so badass what he does. Like, oh, he, he just brushed him off like, like, a, like a fly off of his shoulder. 
or something like that. And you, on the slow-mo, it, it's so great because you see the guy in the background come up with the fist. And Vince's reaction is great, too. And look at this. Look at the way Andre responds to Hogan's exit as if he's just so much garbage. Look at No, 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 I disagree. He's saying you're nothing, champion. You're nothing. You finally met your match. You've met the man that'll beat you. You know, I didn't write this down, but damn, was Vince so good on this show because he knew what was at stake. He knew what he had to build up. But, of course, he's also got it's like cooking the finest cut of meat. I mean, yeah, you still got to cook it correctly, but, you know, having the best cuts of meat certainly does help to having a better steak. They go to the commercial. I don't know what they did or if they just, if they everybody stands perfectly still, but no, this is not live to tape. They're just going to show where we left off. And with Andre, one thing I should mention is, you know, this is him wearing the black singlet that he would wear until the middle of 1989. And you can see the back brace that he had on kind of protruding a little bit from it you wouldn't see that after about the beginning of 88 i think he still has it on at the survivor series i don't remember seeing it at wrestlemania though but you can you can definitely see it as i now i notice that demolition smash because i've been noticing acts left and right for all the little stuff he's doing smash is now barry darso he he has now officially replaced moondog spot which it's okay but it's kind of jarring to see smash with such short hair it's almost it's almost like he was a russian or a soviet somewhere else jumping jim brunzel is out i i should mention that i don't know who he was eliminated by but it's no no not a big deal but now it is time to get down to the business of everybody in the ring ganging up to get rid of Andre the Giant. And you see that in Battle Royals. You see it in Royal Rumbles. I remember Canadian Earthquake in the 90 Royal Rumble wreaked havoc for about four minutes, and then everybody's like, enough of this shit, and got rid of him as Dino Bravo stood across the ring and watched his friend get eliminated with a thumb up his ass. Or maybe he was smoking a cigarette. I don't really know. So you got eight dudes bundling Andre out of the ring, and they got to do this with a great deal of care. Because they got to get him out of there, but they can't injure him in any way. Because if somebody is responsible for injuring Andre the Giant at this point in time, there is going to be hell to pay. This isn't like Sting at Clash of the Champions 10, where somebody grabs his leg and you get some fluke accident. Accidents will not be accepted. It, it, we're trying to fill a dome stadium here, people. And if Andre gets hurt, we're not filling it with Hogan Kamala. Sure, it drew a lot of money, but it's just not going to work. So they, they do get him out of the ring, and he's fine. And he walks to the back, and Vince is like, that is an angry giant. But now, it's very interesting because we're, we're going to speed to the finish, but Hogan's out, Andre's out. So watching it as a fan, go you know, put yourself in 1987 shoes and say to yourself, who's gonna who's gonna actually win this thing? It's very unpredictable. It's the Royal Rumble problem now with oh, well the winner gets a title shot at WrestleMania. Well the problem with that is it telegraphs it down to basically three or four guys. There the unpredictability of the thing is completely lost. And I understand, yeah, you're gonna always wanna have one of your bigger stars do it, but there comes a point where maybe you want to foist a surprise at some point in time. Maybe they'll do that in the next five years. Uh, who, who really knows? Coco Beware eliminates Butch Reed with a drop kick, and that's some maybe a little bit of a minor build to set up their WrestleMania three match. 
And now you have a very odd Final Four in the ring. And I don't know what kind of odds you would have gotten if you had picked Hercules, Billy Jack Haynes, Coco Beware, and Smash from Demolition. Always great when one half of a tag team is just randomly there. Like, my all-time favorite, Brian Nobbs, is one of the last three people in the 1991 Royal Rumble. What the hell? What the hell is going on here? But that is what it is. And we're going to get... One of the faces pair off with the heels, and then the other set will pair off. It's Hercules and Coco Beware and Billy Jack Haynes and Smash. And Billy Jack actually saves Coco. And, of course, Jesse's like, well, why would you save him? Well, it's because you want to have that other guy who's your friend from the babyface locker room. You don't want to be put in a two-on-one situation. You'd rather have that two-on-one advantage, and then you can work together, and then maybe you can work out some sort of agreement, or you can bad news brown the other guy like he did at WrestleMania 4. So he saves him, but it's not for long, because Coco is then put out of the ring. And we get a double clothesline by Hercules and Smash, and that is followed up with a, a very, very strange spot. The way they edited this and cut it, something seemed amiss. Where Hercules is kind of barking instructions to Smash, so this kind of makes him look like a kind of a dumbass. And Smash does the whip. Hercules drops down as Billy Jack is running the ropes. But Billy Jack fires a clothesline to Smash, but he's not right up against the ropes. So it's not the clothesline him over the top rope spot that you're used to seeing. He's kind of like a couple of feet away. So he kind of you know stumbles over to the top rope. And then you have an awkward cut. And he's pretty much already on the floor. So that makes me wonder, what the hell happened there? And I like to call that the Baron Corbin Bull Dempsey spot from TakeOver Evolution from 2014. And yes, I actually can remember specific spots, as long as it's NXT from 2014 to 2015. Because Baron Corbin couldn't get over the top rope, and then he kind of had to jump Uh, just really awkwardly and I bet it was something like that but you could edit that out but it's certainly noticeable so now we're building to another Wrestlemania 3 match with Billy Jack Hayes and Hercules as I said they had a battle of the full Nelsons and Heenan who is at ringside he's the only manager but he had said he set this up in the pre-match interview where he was going to be down there with Andre the big insurance policy that you remember hearing And Billy Jack gets distracted, goes after Heenan, which allows Hercules to sneak up on him and throw Billy Jack over the top rope. Gets one over on him again. Doesn't hit him with a chain and bloody him like at WrestleMania 3, but he does pick up the win in this 20-man over-the-top rope battle royal on Saturday night's main event. It does make me wonder, where was Slick? Where were any of these other managers? Like, why was Heenan the only one who was able to actually weasel his way down there? Jimmy Hart did come down with the honky-tonk man, but he left. Is Bobby Heenan just more courageous than other managers? I, he, he certainly puts himself out there, I think, a little bit more. Jimmy Hart we get his pants pulled off all the time, but that doesn't necessarily make him more courageous than Heenan. I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit that point some point in the future. So we go to the back. Gene Okerlund is with Andre the Giant, who makes a, <laughs> makes a very uh, cogent case for why he's going to beat Hulk Hogan at the unnamed WrestleMania 3. And Bobby Heenan crashes onto the scene. I have two things to say. It takes eight wrestlers to get Andre the Giant out of the ring. But it takes only one giant to get Hulk Hogan out of the ring. Now, wait a minute, Andre. I'm going to take it. We did it. Bobby we Heenan, did it. 
We won the battle royal. We did it, Andre. I told you I was going to do it. I told you I was going to do it, and we did it. You know what amazed me out there? Like he says, eight, eight of the toughest wrestlers on earth to get him out of the ring. One giant, one giant took Hulk Hogan through that 300 and some pound big pile of blonde garbage out of that ring to the cement floor. The whole match, from the start of the match to the time he was ejected, Hogan hid. And you hid well, dummy. You hid behind every tough man in the world. But he walked through them all. He waded through that mass of humanity. And when he put his hands on your busted up carcass, you went out of there. Your ETA was about four seconds. And like I said, this man, 15 years undefeated, is going to remain undefeated. And by God, he is going to become the next heavyweight champion of the world. Let's go. As I said with Vince, it also applies to Heenan. He was really on his game that night. But I'm distracted by something there. It's Where the hell are they standing? They're like in front of this like this wood paneling. What are they, in like a freaking ski lodge or something like that? It's like, is this the Joe Louis Arena or is this Loon Mountain? I mean, what the hell? This is kind of like in the March 87 Saturday Night's Main Event. There's also another Hogan, excuse me, a Keenan Andre interview in front of some wood paneling. I don't know if it was like the style at the time. It might have been a Hogan interview. I don't even remember. But I know that there was wood paneling. Was there some sort of thing in 1987 where like we have to make certain things look like they're in a ski lodge even though, like, we're not going to do any of the other stuff in front of this background. It's very confusing. Imagine waking up to find everything just as good as it can be. Imagine having nothing but the best to look forward to. Guys should be sunny for the rest of the century. Now imagine the remarkable new Prius, imported by Mitsubishi, with front-wheel drive and independent suspension, and the pure enjoyment of over 60 standard features, all for just over $5,000. The new Prius. Now that it's here, maybe everything else will fall into place. The new Prius, imported by Mitsubishi. If there's one thing Peter Winston does not get tired of, it's old car commercials from the 80s where they talk about how much the car costs and talking about, like, the features. Oh, I love that sort of stuff. I know on my YouTube channel I have one where it talks about how they're offering 7.7% financing. I mean, in this day and age, that's high for, like, student loans. Actually, I don't know what the interest rate is on student loans. I'm I'm just glad that mine eventually got paid off. We literally hit the showers to where Mean Gene Okerlund is standing by with Jake the Snake Roberts, who has decided, obviously, to spook Okerlund with the snake. I tell you something, everybody knows I'm facing 400 pounds of real pork in King Kong Bundy. But I'll tell you something, Damien and I have timed his cycle where he's really hungry. And he's really hungry tonight, Mean Gene. We're ready for Bundy. When he used the phrase time the cycle, I'm like, what, like the rhythm method or something? Is Jake some sort of Catholic theologian? Uh, maybe I'm just weirded out because this is taking place in the shower and there's tiles behind them. You got the wood paneling earlier. I don't know what's going on. But even that's we- if that's weird enough, okay, this is what we get going into commercial from the Hart Foundation who are making the traditional first tag team title defense on Saturday Night's Main Event. It's my first time. Is it your first time? It's my first time. Is it your first time? It's my first time. It's our first time. needed to leave in the take on me bumper by aha just to kind of bring me back to normalcy so up next we have jake the snake roberts against king kong bunty and this is going to get a little complex because jake has just turned babyface, but 
let me just give the sequence of events because it kind of I had to draw everything out and you know get everything in line so that I would understand this completely. Okay. Jake is a babyface when this airs, March 14th. However, he is turned from heel to babyface when the Honky Tonk Man hits him with a guitar on an episode of The Snake Pit. The Snake Pit was on hiatus for several weeks at the beginning of February, so it did not air until the January uh, February 22nd episode of Wrestling Challenge, but it was taped January 27th. This episode, though, of Saturday Night's Main Event is taped on February 21st, one day before the challenge aired. However, Wrestling Challenge in some markets aired on Saturday rather than Sunday. And in fact, may have actually aired on Friday night in some places. So, who knows? So anyway, people are cheering Jake now, which is fine because they were cheering for Jake against the Macho Man at the end of 86. So, it was kind of going with what the people wanted, I guess. That's the WWF for you. Always... Always have done that, e- even to this day. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. So, what is Jake up to? I- I'm I'm curious. Like, how how is this transition going? Well, in early February, before the turn would have aired, Jake is facing Kamala on house shows. So, okay, he's the clearly the baby face there. Like, he faces King Kong Bundy the night before this is taped in Detroit. Faces him in Chicago on the twentieth. But yet. He's got a match with Hulk Hogan in Winnipeg on February 28th. Now, who knows? Winnipeg, their TV might have been delayed, so they might not have seen that episode of the Snake Pit yet. I don't know. I really don't want to get my head too far twisted around. And speaking of people who could have been turned, it's King Kong Bundy. I really see him as somebody who could have fit into what would later become that big boss man role alongside Hogan in 90 and into 91, where he's he's the pal next to him who they once had a war against each other, but now they have mutual respect. Bundy proved that he could be a babyface in places that he had been before the WWFs, so I could see this as something that worked. And they actually did a little thing on TV, maybe once, maybe twice, may have actually been on Wrestling Challenge, so even less publicized than usual, where they did that thing where one guy is going to the ring and the other guy is coming back to the back, and they cross each other in the aisle. And they did that with Kamala and King Kong Bundy. And you'd have to imagine that Bundy would have been the guy turned babyface because they had him bickering with King, with Big John Studd in the middle of 86 before Studd departed when they were that tag team. Although, as the story goes, they were going to turn Big John Studd babyface, which I don't think that would have worked. I mean, we saw how it happened in 1989 where uh, people just didn't really want to cheer him all that much. So getting into this match... Vince and Jesse, they just keep talking about Bundy falling on the snake, really foreshadowing Earthquake some four years later. And they trade a little bit of arm work, a very slow start between these two. I mean, Bundy's a big guy, and Jake is more known for his psychology than for running around the ring. But Jake kicks at Bundy's leg, so he's taking the psychological angle of, we got this big guy, i got to get him off his feet, so I'm going to go at the legs. And they do a knuckle lock, and Jake ends up down, which was very strange because they make it, he's in a pinning predicament, his shoulders are on the mat, and Jake has to bridge up. Now, he hurt his neck on that guitar shot from the Honky Tonk Band. That much is established, whether the guitar was gimmicked, all the legend that surrounds it. You're going to make Jake, with his neck injury, do a bridge spot. 
like at this particular point in time. I, I don't, I don't get. It. I, it's really, what the you know is going on here. So he, he kicks Bundy in the thigh again because that's the offense. It seems to be working, but. King Kong Bundy regains control with a Belzer lock, and it's a, a fairly lengthy one, and an Irish whip, but he puts his head down. A cardinal mistake for a ring veteran, and Jake gets a knee lift as Bundy just kind of, he's down, so Jake goes for the snake. That doesn't really make much sense, and Bundy grabs him from behind. And this allows the courageous Bobby Heenan, and I said that I was going to bring this up again, to sneak over to that corner and take the bag with Damien in it and just run towards the back, of which Jake somehow catches up to him. I, I don't know if it's because the bag is heavy and it's slowing Heenan down, but this allows them the opportunity to go to an ad break, and when they come back, Jake has the snake back. And Bundy is, once again, though, in total control of the match. A couple of shoulder blocks with speed, and he does that twice. And then Jake dodges one and gives it an ole, throws Bundy into the corner, and he kind of bounces off at Jake. And I don't quite get this. It might be because he's still a heel to a segment of the audience who might not be familiar. He just goes for the snake bag again. Or I don't know if it's because he's facing a much bigger man, if he's you know still playing heel or, or what. But if, the referee for this bout is John Bonello, and he tries to stop him. And Jake just kind of knees him near the groin area. So that picks up a DQ. So you kind of get a non-finish here with jake roberts and king kong bundy i mean bundy isn't doing a whole lot at this point but you know you want to you want to keep him strong so you can heat him up later and have him as a viable opponent for hogan now back to john Bonello, our referee this is the infamous dude who ended up doing 18 months in jail for hiring a hitman to kill his wife now, I don't know if the crime was that he killed, you know, hired a hitman to kill his wife or if he hired a hitman that wasn't Bret Hart. I don't know. But Jake, uh, I don't know. I guess he's standing up for <laughs> he's standing up for wives everywhere. The year after, it would be his own wife when Rick Rude goes at her. And now he's just trying to prevent tragedy from happening to uh, John Bonello's wife, I guess. In the post-match, Bundy goes for a, an elbow and misses, which I thought was kind of funny. He's like, why don't you just go for the splash? I mean, doesn't that make more sense? But then Jake, to much to my surprise, hits the DDT on Bundy. Certainly one of the bigger dudes that the move was ever done on. It wasn't the greatest-looking version of it, but it gets a nice pop from the crowd in Detroit. And he goes for the snake bag, and I wonder, how does Bundy get out of here? Well, Heenan has materialized again at ringside he grabs Bundy by the leg and John Bonello he's there too and he's going to get the snake thrown at him but he bails out of there in time so a non-finish doesn't really hurt anybody I mean Jake like I said he's more about psychology and he's just embarking upon a new adventure the adventure of being a World Wrestling Federation babyface when this dragon steps into the ring tonight he'll be breathing fire no, no, no. Come on, Ricky. We're in 1987 here. That's your 1991 gimmick. Let's just take it one year at a time until we get to that point, okay? So they do a little bit of a flashback to how the Hart Foundation won the WWF Tag Team titles from the British Bulldogs, which I covered all the way back in Episode 4, same as the Hogan-Andre Piper's Pit. 
And they are joined by manager Jimmy Hart, along with Gene Okerlund. And they have a special guest who will be accompanying them for all their matches for going forward, or at least for a little while. Tonight's our first title defense. And to avoid all problems at ringside, including bad referees and outside interference, we're instituting a new policy of an official observer at ringside. And tonight, our official observer is going to be Danny Davis. You have got to be kidding me. This is a new low even for your man. Excuse me, Danny Davis. What, what qualifies you to be an official observer? My proven impartiality in the room. <laughs> oh, you've got to be kidding. There's something weird about Davis's voice, and I don't think it's that he's billed from Dover, New Hampshire, or was actually born in Massachusetts. I, I, maybe I'm crazy, but I swear I'm detecting just a hint of the character from Peanuts' pig pen in his voice. Sort of makes you want to treat me with more respect, doesn't it? It's really amazing that there isn't a Peanuts cartoon devoted to the number of allergies that pig pen trigger just from walking around because the dude was a human leaf blower and none of these kids had an issue with all these particulates floating around in the air every time he would show up but anyway so tito santana and danny spivey provide the opposition for the heart foundation and i said earlier i was wondering who the substitute was because when you look at the results on the history of wwe.com it indicates that spivey is the one subbing for Rotundo, but that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You would think that Tito is the one subbing for Rotundo since Rotundo and Spivey are the new U.S. Express. Rotundo has left for Florida and the NWA. So I think that Tito is subbing for Rotundo because even, even though the Tito being the more famous guy, when you have a substitute, generally it tends to be a lesser known person and then they end up eating the pin. But I don't know. I guess this is kind of turning it on its ear. So we get going. The Hart Foundation with their first title defense. Yes, their first title defense, as they've reminded you like 8,000 times. And we start with Spivey and the Anvil. And the Hart Foundation are wearing their all pink getups from the moment they become champions, which is somewhat iconic, I must say. Less so is Danny Spivey's trunks, which even though he's in, he was in something called the New U.S. Express, if you look at the back of his trunks, they are basically the it's the French flag, the way the colors are arranged. And it got me wondering, how did the French flag come to be? Because it would actually become something of a model for other nations around the world. And the French government website states that the white in the flag is color of the king, blue and red are the colors of Paris. The three colors are occasionally taken to represent the three elements of the revolutionary model. Motto, liberté, freedom, blue, égalité, equality, white, fraternité, brotherhood, red. The symbolism was referenced in Christoph Kowalski's Three Colors film trilogy, for example. Now, I don't know what all that means, but maybe uh, you, you can figure it out for yourself. Anvil is Atomic Drop, who then tags out to Brett, who immediately ends up in peril because it's 1987 and not 1993. But the ring and the ring is cut off. A shoulder block by Spivey gets a two count. A save by the Anvil actually led to that two count. It's not like Brett kicked out. But the tide eventually does turn. And since Brett is in the ring, it doesn't happen via <laughs> Brett with the knee to the back off the Irish whip. But when Brett gets in there, he hits the trademark backbreaker. And a slingshot splash when he tags the anvil. Anvil comes in with the slingshot splash. He gets a two count. Like, whoa, that's a pretty cool move, but something of a babyface move. And 
Interesting how that was the Can-Am Connections finishing move that the Hart Foundation was using as something of a transition move. They would also use the demolition decapitation from time to time, and it, it just kind of blows my mind that the Hearts would use other teams' finishers while they were in the company. Just kind of, kind of odd. Tito runs into the ring to try and save things, but he is stopped by the referee, which allows a double team in the corner. Second rope elbow by Brett, so one of those trademark five moves of Doom, and then he puts in a Belzer lock close to the tag, but Anvil is in to distract, so now the referee will not allow the tag when it's made because he had his back turn. A Brett charge accidentally hits the Anvil, and Spivey escapes gets over to the other side of the ring and makes the tag to Tito Santana who comes in on Brett corner whip and the hitman does that bump that he always would do into the corner turnbuckle going face first as fast as he possibly could Danny Davis as our impartial observer at ringside but by the way I, I think the Bruins could have used one of those game five against St. Louis Maybe uh, the trip on Noel Chari. Anyway, he gets knocked off the apron in short order because Danny Davis, not really much of a threat. He's kind of like those guys in the beginning of the game, Double Dragon, where it only takes like one shot to, to kill them. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's and a flying forearm by Tito, who follows it up by locking on the figure four. I like when Tito would go back to that figure four. It, it was a move that I think worked for him. But Danny Davis has Jimmy Hart's megaphone. He actually sneaks 180 degrees down the ring because he knows the referee is looking one way. So he carefully goes into the ring, the side the official is not watching. And he comes in, hits Tito right in the head with the megaphone. And Brett covers for the one, two, and the three. I was actually very surprised, despite what I was saying about the substitute guy is usually lesser known and ends up taking the pin. I was very surprised that Tito, who quite frankly is a bigger star than Dan Spivey in 87 WWF by any measurable standard. The fact that Tito took the pin here is kind of surprising until you consider this is building heat for the six man at WrestleMania 3 because... The only way you've created an issue with Tito and Danny Davis is by inventing this Danny Davis allowed Randy Savage to cheat and win the title off Tito. When, quite frankly, his backwards turn, it was an honest referee mistake that that had a sinister motive assigned to it in, in sort of retconning the whole thing. So for those who aren't necessarily believing in that and buying into that, you might as well do something like this. Give the fans another reason to be pissed on Tito Santana's behalf at Danny Davis. Come on! Come on! Come on! Give him some more! Danny Davis! Oh, oh no. look at this! Look at this! Davis! Oh! Give the back of Santana! The damage is done. The referee occupied. Davis did the dirty work. Bret Hart going for the cover. I can't believe it, And man. they're still champions. Up next, we have the Iron Sheik taking on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. But first, before they go to commercial, and they seem to be very fond of this for this particular show, having wrestlers kind of do these little blurbs for the bumpers. I mean, hell, this is the third one I'm going to play for the Roddy Piper tribute that's going to end up closing the show. Ah, you think you've seen a fanfare so far? Baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just stay tuned. Because the hot rod, he's a coming to march in it right in your living room. 
room. Well, it's a good thing he didn't literally march into anybody's living room because the next time a WWF wrestler would pull a stunt like that, Brian Pillman would pull a gun on them. And then they would get into a lot of trouble. But who actually does come marching in is the macho man, Randy Savage. And he's there to give the dragon a little what for. But what's more interesting to me is that Savage is wearing jeans. Something of a different look for him. Although I guess it's in that photo that's been memed countless times over the last year. I don't really remember seeing it before then. That's like feeling savage and feeling cute today the one where he's kind of sitting on the rocks i i, I don't i don't know where that came from i don't know where most internet stuff comes from but savage is actually going to join the commentary team so a preview of the next critics of Alatow, the april 1991 show where he actually is on commentary as we see the back of vince's jacket that was mentioned by Jesse in the opening Ballbuster segment. And it has this really odd design that, like, it's like it has vinyl striping. I, I, it's very hard to describe. I don't know if it was the Burgess Meredith as the penguin, but it, it, it is kind of strange looking. Early on here, Sheik gets an advantage, throws Steamboat over the top rope, but he skins the cat back into the ring and the dragon scores with a back suplex so uh, giving the iron sheik a taste of his own medicine while at the same time letting all japan know that even though it's been two and a half years since he's worked in that promotion he is ready to come back at any time team with giant baba and dump guys on their heads but for now he's got an issue with randy savage and as they end up outside Sheik and the Dragon, Savage has some pointed comments for his rival. The next time I get my hands on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, it's going to make what I did last time look like he had a sliver. Look at that! Tremendous maneuver! Hey, Vince has had a good night, but I'm not expecting him to throw a perfect game here. I mean, we're going to get a what a maneuver that was at some point, even in 1987. Sheiky locks in the abdominal stretch, and luckily Gorilla Monsoon isn't here to say that the toe isn't locked or whatever whatever nonsense that he would bring up for this dragon gets out of it fairly easily with a hip toss and a slam by ricky it goes up to the top rope and i'm thinking okay sheik's gonna get up you're gonna get the cross body block but instead we get the more simple chop to the top of the head and that picks up the one two three this thing's over in less than four minutes but then again this is the last match on our saturday night's main event you know none of these ever really last more than four five minutes tops and we get another great shot from behind the commentary desk where they are in the arena and they are fairly close to the ring but they're in the kind of the stands area and from behind there you see steamboat he's on the corner turnbuckle on the side where commentary is and he's arguing with savage and they're having a little back and forth so another cool shot by them people are throwing paper into the ring i I find that a little weird like what is this 1996 wcw but i'm thinking these two dudes are going to meet again probably in the suburban detroit area in a few weeks at some unnamed event that we cannot mention on nbc's airway so we go to the back and gene okerland is with the world heavyweight champion hulk hogan who look, appears to be nearly crying over losing a battle royal hogan would take losing battle royals harder than anybody else i don't i don't quite get it it's not like taking a pinfall or anything like that all right he's up there it's like it's like losing a board game i mean who who cares really 
Well, you know, you don't become champion of the world by doing things halfway, Andre. You don't stab friends in the back. You don't stab generations with the holsters in the back. You don't throw people with a top rope from behind, man. Offer does not apply to 1989 Royal Rumble. That's only halfway. What has it been with you, man? Has your whole life been a lie? 15 years undefeated? Did you cheat every single time you got your hand raised, man? But we were in that battle royal, man. I got a chance to test you. I got a chance to feel the 15 years of undefeated obesity, man. I can handle it, brother. It's all the spark I needed to face you in that one-on-one -on -one confrontation. You know, I've never thought of Andre the Giant as being obese, but Hogan's actually right. Although, I don't understand. He had so many opponents like One Man Gang, Kamala, both before and after this point. King Kong Bundy being before and after. And he never referred to him once as obese in all the promos. But then again, there's a lot of local stuff that I haven't seen. Well, you know, now that I know where he's coming from, now that the whole world knows what he's all about, the next time, Andre, you and I lock up, not only will you feel Hulkamania, not only will you feel the 24-inch pythons, the psych, the thousands, the millions of Hulkamaniacs, the big brother upstairs on my side, I'm going to steal all the power I can, man, because you've got to play this one straight, man. To be the world's champion, you've got to beat me face to face. You've got to put me on my back, brother. And when you're on top of that mountain, when you feel the real power of Hulkamania, don't slip and fall, brother, because it's a long way down. Wow, as an observer of this Saturday night's main event universe, if only somebody would tell me where this great collision between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant is going to take place. I'd, I'd really pay money to see that, whether it be live in a stadium setting or perhaps on my television set via some sort of satellite device that will beam it into my living room. He is one of a kind, a man that is actually hanging it up at the very peak of his career. Very much, if I can pay this tribute to you, like the late, great Rocky Marciano, who quit as the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, it's quite a tribute. That's <laughs> uh, pretty a nice company. I'm not pushing up daisies yet, Gina. He's not fucking dead. Back in 87, we weren't all cynical about these sort of retirements. Everybody thought, okay, this is it. We're not going to see Roddy Piper again. And, but I, to me, I'm glad that he came back just for the 89 prime times where he's arguing with Rude and Heenan. I mean, that alone is worth it for me. And you get into 91 where he single-handedly makes Virgil one of the top four or five baby faces in a golden era WWF year. But... Uh, the the shame of it all is that when Piper came back, we never got heel Piper the way it was from '84 to '86. I mean that that would have been neat because it would have been fresh all over again. It's a shame that didn't happen. But he's very eloquent in reflecting upon his years, his over three years in the WWF. I just uh, made a transfer. You know, I'm the kind of guy. I guess I said. I'm real proud of my sport. That's the first thing I want to say for 16 years. Probably kept me out of jail when I was a kid. And the WWF has done more for me than uh, anything in the world. But I've made a decision. I'm in the peak. Of course, I'm in the peak of my career. But I'm going to Hollywood and I'm going out, man. I'm going to give it 110%. Uh, anytime I ever fought, I gave 110%. And sometimes you guys chucking eggs at me. And, and sometimes... Uh, Sometimes you weren't. Sometimes you're chucking roses. It didn't matter to me. I, I give 110% then, and, and I give 110% at anything I do, and, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give it a try, man. I'm kind of a gutsy guy. We're, we're proud of you, Roddy. Very yeah. proud of you. 
Thanks. I try hard. I know saying that you give 110% is something of a figure of speech, but for whatever reason, my mind goes back to my very brief career playing freshman football at Malden Catholic and having the athletic director come out and address the team. I don't know if it was before the season, during the season, or what, but during his speech, he kept saying, you go out there and give 150%. And I kept never will forget him saying 150 percent like you're the only guy asking to for us to give 150 percent and this is for freaking freshman football it's hard enough to give 110 percent you want me to give 150 percent but yes piper <laughs> giving 110 percent in segments where well you know they, they they couldn't all be home runs but he certainly did try his best during this run and we get the tribute song set to My Way by Frank Sinatra, which I thought was the reason why the full video was blocked in the United States. And then just a few minutes ago, I happened to look elsewhere and somebody had it off their VCR and was just able to post it complete with My Way. So, okay. But I'm not, I'm not going to play the whole thing. But it, it is a fitting tribute for him because you can't really play rock music. <laughs> Two years before, he's railing against the rock and wrestling connection, and I know that they're not, you know, referencing stuff from that far before on a regular basis. But having Sinatra there makes a lot more sense. And thinking of tribute videos for other guys or athletes or whatever, "Small Town" by John Mellencamp for Larry Bird, that makes sense because he came from French Lick, Indiana, and Mellencamp is from Indiana. It, it all makes sense. The best one, in my opinion. Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better for Bobby Orr, which I swear to God, this, I don't know how this is not on YouTube, but they played a tribute video for Bobby Orr, and the Canadian hockey commentator and former Bruins head coach Don Cherry like, actually was crying at the end of it, which is kind of a funny thing because he's a very gruff and odd individual. But My Way by Frank Sinatra definitely sums up Roddy Piper's time. And here are some the things that they show. I mean, I'm not going to... But they do sync it up with the lyrics, which makes sense, especially in comparison to what is on the WWE Network, because you have the overdub. And that, low-key, one of the worst overdubs that there is, because it sounds like the kind of music that you play when you call the timeshare company, and they put you on hold, for whatever reason, for about seven minutes... And I say this because I've actually done this in the last couple of weeks. And they, it's like this elevator music. Like, I'm half expecting it, like, in the middle of the tribute, like, when they get to, you know, just uh, Piper and Bob Orton fooling around on the set of TNT. Like, please continue to hold. Or, you know, something like that. But they show his WrestleMania 1 entrance where he's walking down slowly and then quickly turns his head. I always thought that that was a nice touch, like, oh, he's going to go attack that person who looked at him funny in the pit with Adrian Adonis. Because you can't just do him as a baby face. You, you, he, there's such an extensive heel history that, yes, that has to be acknowledged. And it goes into why people loved him so much. In the first Saturday Night's main event in Piper's Pit with Paul Orndorff, which led to the split between those two dating back to WrestleMania, him getting a suntan lotion or whatever rubbed down next to Jesse the Body from the fourth Saturday Night's main event, which I covered back in episode 28 or 29. I forget which one it was. Do check that out in the archives. Him on the pit with Jimmy Hart tied up in a chair like they're reenacting Reservoir Dogs, except that that movie hasn't come out yet. 
him and Cindy Lauper, the match with Adonis on Saturday night's main event. But where Jimmy Snuka getting hit with the coconut on the pit in 84, that's the part of the song, right? Yes, there were times you knew I bit off more than I could chew. And, and coconut being food, come on, it, it, it's good stuff. The time Piper got cooties in the pit by kissing the fabulous Mula, him screwing around in the kitchen with Lou Albano, him shaving the head of the Haiti kid in leading up to WrestleMania 2. And then after WrestleMania 2, the boxing, him raising his arms in triumph that the, the Nassau Coliseum crowd effectively turned him babyface in the match because they were just really tired of Mr. T for whatever reason. Him getting beat down by Adrian Adonis and him also destroying the flower shop. So you see both sides of that. And then the Halloween episode of Saturday Night's Main Event where he is, they're doing the thing where you pass the apple without using your hands, so you're using your neck. And he's passing it to Elizabeth and you can see... Randy Savage, like, hovering over, like, what are you doing, brother? Are you going to start necking with uh, Elizabeth? No, no, no. Oh, it's it's so good. I love love that thing. I'm going to have to do the third Saturday Night's Main event at some point. Whipping Mr. T in the back. Some more good stuff. And then one of the great, greatest moments of all, him at Uncle Elmer's wedding, which I also covered about episode 105. Check it out in the archives. You get the lyric, Say the things he truly feels. I'm not going to try and sing this song. If anybody's going to sing this, it's going to be Keithy, because I remember when we went to North Carolina, we went up to karaoke. For for some reason, my friend Chris like, hey, let's go to karaoke. And it's like freaking 20 miles away up the freaking Outer Banks. Like, oh, okay, we could have just sat at home and drank, but instead we're going to drive a half an hour to get drunk and go to karaoke, which was so bad because Keith goes up there, he sings my way, by Sinatra and the thing cuts off after a minute and a half and the guy tries to like stop stop him so Keith just kept going so good on Keith it was one of the great Keithy moments of all time the record shows and that's when he's hitting Captain Lou over the head with the album oh it's so good and you get to the end of it and they go back to Vince and Jesse Kind of a funny remark from the body on Piper's future plans. Well, I'll just say this. He says he's coming to Hollywood. There ain't room for he and I in Hollywood. My star's being polished. Piper, you're going to fail miserably. Well, that's interesting since it would only be a couple of years before Ventura and Piper would team up on a project called Tag Team. But I'll get to that in a second. Piper had the movie Body Slam, which was going to be coming out, supposedly, in the summer of 87. The only thing with that is there was some sort of lawsuit between the original writers of the film and Hal Needham, the director, and all sorts of issues. Never got released in the theaters, but kind of a cult classic because of all the wrestling personalities that are in it. And that seemed to be what Piper would... He would do cult classics. Hell Comes to Frogtown, They Live. Those were both 1988 and made after he would have left pro wrestling. But at a certain point, he realizes... Oh yeah, wrestling is my bread and butter, and I can make a lot of money doing that. And I don't necessarily have to risk my body too much doing this, given what Piper's style was. It's not like he was having barbed wire exploding ring matches or anything. So that's why he could come back. Jesse Ventura, on the other hand, because of his health issues, didn't necessarily have that option. But he also, you know, started out with better roles like Predator, and he would have, had a lot more cameos 
than I remembered. You, you kind of think of him as becoming a politician. He becomes the mayor of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, and then, of course, the governor of Minnesota from 99 through 2003. But he was also acting during that time, just usually like in these little cameo roles that of movies that I probably haven't seen. But Tag Team, a project that he and that Piper and Ventura worked together on in 1990, which Jesse references oddly at WrestleMania 6. And I say oddly because when I would go back and watch that, I have no idea what he was referring to because I didn't know about this tag team thing. It was something that they had done during 1990. They filmed a match with them against the Orient Express, all given different names. But they did it at a WWF show for what was going to be the pilot of this program that was supposed to get a 13-episode run, I guess, but then uh, some sort of lawsuit always seemed to happen with the Piper projects, or so it seems. But this show Tag Team had quite the premise. Uh, Somebody described it, uh, I don't know where it was, as Hunter meets the WWF. Hunter being that cop show on NBC with former football player Fred Dreyer. But let me read what the premise was for Tag Team, in in case you missed it, which you probably did because they burned off the pilot in January of 1991 during the height of the Gulf War coverage that was happening. I think it was like January 24th, the night before, I think it would have been, or the week before Super Bowl twenty-five. Tricky Rick McDonald and Billy the Body Youngblood, very original, are two of the best wrestlers in the country. They are told to take a dive by the wife of a promoter. If they don't, she will make sure that they are blackballed from wrestling. When they don't do what she says, they are fired immediately. They try many jobs without any success. When they stop a grocery store robbery, they get the idea to be cops. So begins a new chapter in the life of this tag team. Bad guys, watch out. Oh, that is that is so amazing. I mean, I know it's completely terrible, but holy crap, like, <laughs> Billy the Body Youngblood. If they don't, she will make sure that they are blackballed from wrestling. It's like, okay. So they're not following what the what the bookers want. So they probably should be fired. I mean, if, if you're not going to take instruction, uh, you're not going to last long in this business, kid. Tag Team is on YouTube. It's about 58 minutes. And God knows that when there's a rainy day or when the weather is crappy out, I should just stay inside and watch that and see if I can do a show devoted to that. Because... Well, there's probably some good stuff in there, and Piper and Ventura are two of my favorites, so it feels like it would be a natural for what I'm trying to accomplish here. And they (laughs) wrap it up, Jesse and Vince do, for Saturday night's main event, and (laughs) Vince says, somewhere Andre and Hogan will meet again. Like, oh, where might that be? I hate to keep beating that joke into the ground, but they can't say the words WrestleMania. They can't refer to this event that is happening 15 days after this airs. But luckily, at the end, we have the closing theme of many of the early Saturday night's main events, Take Me Home. By noted wrestling fan Phil Collins. That song, Take Me Home, there is no better song in the universe if you're driving by yourself and it's like 2.30 in the morning and you're on the highway and you're going like 80 miles an hour and you're driving home. That That is the best song that you could possibly listen to. It came on the radio once when I was driving home at like 2 a.m. from the airport and it, it was so beautiful. I, w- I was almost moved to tears 
quite frankly. Although I think it might be because at the time I was getting close to 40. I'm a white dude, and it was Phil Collins. I I think that's all natural. And that does it for Saturday Night's Main Event for March 14th, 1987. risk of sounding like Perd Hapley from Parks and Rec. The Pro Wrestling Only feed is a feed of podcasts that mostly talk about pro wrestling, and I will be plugging them right now. <laughs> Shimmer Herstory, Volume 6, with uh, Stephen and Stacy talking about uh, this young woman by the name of Rebecca Knox. I, I wonder whatever became of her. There's no way in hell that she's ever going to main event WrestleMania. It is a good thing that Becky Lynch changed her wrestling name from that. It's a little too close to that woman, I think it was Amanda Knox or something, who uh, was up on murder charges in Italy back around that time, probably like late 2000s. I mean, she was eventually exonerated. And then Bell Knox shortly after that, the Duke University student who started doing porn. Probably want to get away from that, especially since you're in WWE where Michael Cole accidentally called Sasha Banks Sasha Gray, which, hey, you want you want to stay as far away from that as possible. Days of Thunder podcast dropping every other Thursday, the last one, looking at the lead up to Spring Stampede 1998. Like I keep saying, they are still in the era of WCW where it, it, it is a lot of fun once you get into 1999, but that, that's that's a long way away. The Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast dropping on Monday, looking at Pacific Northwest Independent Wrestling and PWO Retro, which is kind of standing in for World Cast. Which I, I miss World Class from 1983. I'm really looking forward to those boys getting back and talking about that. But PWO Retro this week is something that wasn't on PWO. It was the 12th episode of Greeks Valentine, WWF Superstars from April 13th, 1991. All that and more on the Pro Wrestling Only feed and other podcasts that I know and love deeply with all my heart is the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing with Mike Crockett and Ring of Honor's Brawler Malonis, who is not there this week because in a match at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium for the ROH Tag Team titles, and he came, he and Beer City Bruiser came up short in that one. So Crockett says that he was off hiding his shame so in for him is Todd Sinclair on the air, the referee from Ring of Honor. And on the Our Vantage Point podcast, Joe Morata and Michael Quinn wrap up their Royal Flush series looking at the worst intercontinental champions. And also in the review segment, take a look at Bret Hart's acting turn in The Adventures of Sinbad. Now, I went and checked this. Is not Sinbad the comedian? It's a completely different thing. But suffice to say, Bret Hart made a lot of interesting decisions in his acting career. You know, Lonesome Dove. Uh, uh, things didn't quite work out for him in the end. It's kind of like Piper and less so for Ventura. Because Ventura, like I said, he got off to a pretty hot start. But anyway, enough about that. There's no YouTube comment theater because even if that video was allowed on YouTube in this country, comments were disabled. And and that is the killer of YouTube comment theater if you're just not going to allow them. So next time on Greetings from Allentown, I don't know if I'm going to have time to do the Tuesday-Thursday thing again because I'm going to be away on Long Island for the weekend. 
But the next one will kind of connect to this one in that this was the high point of the ratings for Saturday Night's main event on NBC. And the next one will be maybe not the low point for the ratings. I'd have to take a look at the numbers again. But it would be the last show on NBC during this run from April 27th, 1991. That Saturday Night's main event, which I have to say has been a request of Keithy since like... I've been doing this show. He has wanted me to do that Saturday Night's main event. And I talked about the Beer Treon series. And yes, he has bought me beer at wrestling shows. So quite frankly, he sh- he should get that request. So uh, maybe he will join me on next week's program if I can figure out the Skype thing or get him on the line or whatever. So we shall see with that. So... I thank you so much for listening, and be sure to give Greetings to Valentine a five-star review on Apple Music, iTunes, whatever your podcatcher thingamajig is. A five-star review provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. And also, be a dear and hit the subscribe button for that and for the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And give a five-star review for the Pro Wrestling Only feed as well. I, I, I just recited off... Some of the great shows that are on this network that have appeared over the last week. So, you know, just, just, it'll, it'll take you approximately 21 seconds to do that. So, uh, I, I thank you in advance for that. And I should just wrap this damn thing up. So, tune in for another exciting episode of Greetings Rob Allentown. Hogan, I want you.